the Lamalarans hunt in a way that's almost exactly the same as the way people hunted during Moby Dick's time. The boats are slightly different, but the mechanics are all essentially the same. And going on one of these hunts uh, is analogous to what, you know, Ishmael or Queequeg was doing 200 years ago. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with journalist Doug Bach-Clark, whose book, The Last Whalers, is a fascinating look into a tribe of subsistence hunters living on a remote island in Indonesia. The Last Whalers was selected as a 2019 notable book by the New York Times, and what makes it special is that it tells the story of these whale hunters in a way that makes their struggles and joys and desires to live a deliberate life relatable rather than exotic. Indeed, in reflecting on how these people have chosen to maintain traditions that stretch back 500 years, it compels you to reflect on your own way of being in the world and how the choices you make about tradition and technology and change affect the way you live. Over the course of our conversation, Doug and I talk about the unique history of this whaling tribe and how their conscious decision to reject certain technologies has some things in common with the Amish. We talk about how their hunting ritual has more in common with the 19th century whale hunts depicted in Moby Dick than in modern commercial whaling. We talk about what it's like to visit this part of Indonesia as a tourist and what it was like for Doug to live with the tribe for months at a time. As usual, this episode is sponsored by Airtrex, which can help you design multi-stop and round-the-world flight itineraries for journeys to places like Indonesia, the South Pacific, and points beyond. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip to see how they can save you money. This podcast is also sponsored by Tortuga, who makes backpacks and backpack accessories for the vagabonding traveler. Go to rolfpots.com slash tortuga to see a selection of their travel packs. And if you see something you like there, that rolfpots.com slash tortuga address will automatically qualify you for 10% off the price of your order at checkout. All right, here's Doug Bach Clark and I talking about what it's like to live with subsistence whale hunters. We start by talking about what makes their culture unique and how understanding the way they live can help us understand the way we live. Let's listen in. Your book, The Last Whalers, is about people living a way of life that's a little bit foreign to us on the other side of the world in a part of Indonesia. And at the very end of the book, you talk about how you want to make readers feel a little bit less American, a little bit less tribal, and more human. Um, what did you mean by that, and how did you aim to capture that through this community you write about that might seem very strange to your average American? Yeah. Well, as you note, the Lamalarans are a tribe of about 1,500 people that live on a small island out on the Pacific Rim. Um, and the way that they survive is they hunt sperm whales for their living. They're one of the world's last true hunter-gatherer groups. And to feed themselves, they row out in wooden boats. And then um, as they approach these whales, a man will run down a diving board essentially attached to the front of the boat and leap off and hurl himself onto the whale and use his body weight to push a bamboo spear into it. And so that's how they get most of their calories. Um, and so I spent about three, about a year over the course of three years living with them. And, you know, one of the reasons that I really wanted to delve into this community and one of the things I was really writing about in my book was 
trying to give a sense of these people as humans, the same way that, you know, you and I are, are people and what their motivations were and what was similar in their lives and what was different compared to our own. Yeah, well, I want to get into the specifics of that in a second and even the specifics of why they, of all the people in the world, uh, are living such a uh, unique life after all these years. But what, what interested you in this story? How did you end up writing about these particular people? Well, so I had lived in Indonesia for quite some time um, when I was younger, and I knew that when I had the opportunity to uh, write a book, that this was the project that I wanted to do a real deep dive on. Um, at, at one point, all of our ancestors, all of humanity, survived as hunter-gatherers. Um, we were foragers. We either hunted things or you know, gathered roots or other vegetables or fruits from the jungle. But today, there are very, very few of those groups left. Um, and the Lamalarians are one of those groups. And I wanted to look at what the transition for one of these groups to a more modern way of life would look like. Um, we often think about such groups as having, as preserving an almost more elemental way of living. And so I wanted to look at questions about what it meant to be human in this modern globalized age by living with this group. It's a book that's very much about change and the prospect of change. And I'm curious, why weren't they changed? I was in Indonesia last year. I was in Sumatra, actually, and I'll probably bring in some, some memories of my experience on the other side of the archipelago. Uh, but why of all the communities in Indonesia, and there's thousands of them, thousands of, or at least many language groups, why are they kind of the last subsistence big whale hunters in Indonesia, if not the world? It's a conscious choice. Um, they're very aware of what's, um, what else is out there. They're, they travel back and forth freely between um, more modern and developed towns um, and their own sort of tribal area. But they see a lot of worth in their way of living. Um, Anthropologists have ranked them as sort of one of the most generous groups in the world, and this is partially because of the need to share out resources like a captured whale or like other, um, you know, resources that they hunt and gather. And so they see a lot of worth in maintaining their old traditions. And then one of the things that I really wanted to investigate when I was talking about seeing how groups like this confront the changes that they're facing with the modern world is that, you know, all of these groups decide on the trade-offs they want to make, whether or not it's worth it to, you know, trade these old traditions in order to get a new TV. Are there any other cultures in the world that can really be compared to them in terms of this choice that they've made to, to, um, to not embrace uh, a modern world that they know about, but is sort of at arm's length? You know, I, I think most indigenous groups are making some sort of choices similar to them. I think it's a spectrum, you know, and I think the Lamalarians would exist on the more conservative end of the spectrum where they are um, trying to preserve more things than, you know, perhaps uh, groups of Native Americans that used to do whaling in the Pacific Northwest, um, for example, and who still... There are several that still, you know, hunt 
once every few years in a mostly traditional for mostly for traditional reasons, whereas the Lama Lairns have chosen to continue doing this for their livelihood. Um, but I think that all groups, all indigenous groups are in some ways sort of trying to pick and choose what they want to keep and what they want to jettison um, within the boundaries of um, what the world actually lets them do as as change sort of comes crashing in. Well, there's an aside I want to bring up just because we look at there, there's some sort of marquee isolated peoples around the world. Uh, and the Lamalarians, I didn't I wasn't really familiar with them, uh, even though I'd been in Indonesia until I read your book. Whereas you've also written about a man who was fascinated with a culture called the, the Sentinelese uh, in the Andaman Islands. Uh, John Chow, the American missionary, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, who went to the Sentinel Islands uh, and was murdered, um, you know, in part because the, Sent the Sentinelese have never mixed with outsiders. They've always fought away outsiders. And so is this an ongoing fascination with you, just the idea of contact with parts of the world that or hold on to tradition and don't have a lot of contact with the rest of the world? You know, I, I think I've always been interested um, with the different possible ways of living. And I think that that includes both, you know, hunter-gatherer ways of living, but also, you know, significantly more uh, futuristic ways of living. As, as you brought up at the beginning of the conversation, um, one of, in sort of my explanation of the book and in, in the afterwards, um, you know, I noted that I wanted to uh, make people just more aware of the myriad ways of life that um, exist across the human spectrum and the worth that all of them have. Um, and so uh, I'm certainly, uh, I think if you look at my body of work, I've written about um, isolated tribes in, in several instances in, in depth. Um, but I, I also... You know, I've written about many cultures across many parts of the world. You know, a lot of my current projects are on North Korea. Um, and I think it's just a fascination with the different modes of human existence and how rich many of them can be. Well, let's dig into to their mode of existence in that part of Indonesia, uh, because I think to really understand the choices that they've made, we, we sort of have to understand how they live. And is it right that they moved there after like a tsunami about 500 years ago? Yeah, so their oral traditions suggest that, you know, give or take 500 years ago, the island they were living on before, which is you know, not that far away, um, but, you know, a, a, a considerable distance by, by uh, primitive boat. Um, was wiped out by a tsunami and there's archaeological records and, and other things that that confirm that and in the wake of that they sort of went on an odyssey to find their new home and ended up on a very isolated spit of land on an isolated island and that spit of land that sort of peninsula has no um real running it has no uh, year-round streams it has no it's very very rocky so it's very hard to grow anything there um, but what it does have are these spectacular cliffs from which you can look out over a very unique deep water strait that channels uh, marine mammal migrations from the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. And so this group had previously been hunting smaller animals like sharks or fish 
using uh, harpoons, which is um, traditional in this area. And so at some point they decided, well, you know, there's those, those huge whales, um, you know, sperm whales, which are usually anywhere from 50 to 60 feet long and, you know, weigh that many tons. Um, uh, Moby Dick was a sperm whale, so you can sort of imagine how daunting it is to go up against one. And they decided, well, let's let's uh, try and spear one of those. They, they have a lot of meat on them. And eventually they got good enough that it became their primary mode of subsistence. Which which is still which still dictates their society today, not just their their daily routines, but also their religion, which is sort of unique. They're they're nominally Catholic, as you write, but they have the ways of the ancestors is is sort of the the, the euphemism or the phrase you use to describe their worship system, and so. Once they figured out that they were in a good place for hunting whales and that could help them survive in this part of the world, how did their, you know, from that time 500 years ago to the end of the 20th century, did their culture change very much? So they've worked very hard to have it not change. Um, And this is a conscious choice. Every year at the end of April, all of the um, voting age men gather together on a beach and decide what the rules for that year are going to be. Um, and so each year it's pretty much a conscious um, reaffirmation of the rules of the previous year, though in the last decade especially, they've, they've seen more changes sort of coming out of that council than had probably happened in the many decades or even centuries before. Um, but for a conservative culture like this, as for several other very conservative fishing cultures, you know, the goal is to try and reproduce the past as much as possible. So when they're building their boats, for example, the boats, the how good a boat is, is, is judged at in how exactly it copies the blueprint of the original boat that brought them from the island that got wiped out to the tsunami to the island where they currently live. Um, and their goal is to copy it's every board and every sort of quirk. And there's no nails or modern construction, right? No, they still, they still make the ancient Tana, which are the whaling ships, um, using, you know, wooden pegs and a, a very special, um, boat building method called lashed lug, which basically tensions the boards together with to such a degree that it can withstand getting battered by a giant whale. And these boats have souls. What does that what does that mean exactly? That I that think I think is a fairly foreign concept. Um but you you depict a scene in your book where when a boat is lost, people are very upset. It's as if they've lost a a person. So how does the soul inhabit these handmade boats? So the, the Lamalarians would be considered animists. Um, as you noted before, they, they practice a unique religion, which is a mix of Catholicism, which was brought in by um, missionaries within the last century. But the missionaries very explicitly uh, sort of mixed it with the local religion, which worshipped the whales, um, that to make it easier for the Lamalarians to accept the Christianity. And so... In that original religion, they believed that everything had a soul, that whether that's the boat or the trees or their harpoon, um, you know, everything had a spirit. Um, 
And so they continue to believe that today. And the, the boats themselves have a, a spirit that's linked to each clan, and um, which is considered a living member and a part of the tribe, which they, they very deeply honor. And they harvest the whales, and then they convert it into what could be called whale jerky, and then they use it to barter um, with other tribes on the island, as I understand it, who I think are Melanesian, which interested me, um, for things like corn and uh, and fruit and things like that. So, so um, it it's has it always been diversified by trade? This this economy in in whale meat. Almost certainly. Um, <laughs> there's no again. There's no written records, you know, until relatively recently. But oral tradition suggests that. Um, what happened is that the the tribes that live by the ocean, like the Lamalarians, traditionally have gotten protein from the sea. And whether that's, you know, fish or whale meat, they then dry it out, they sun dry it into jerky. And they will then climb up into the mountains that um, sort of rise behind their towns and trade it with the farmers who live in the mountains. And now the people down on the coasts don't have good access to water like the Lamalarian. So they can't grow anything. But the farmers who are up in the mountains, um, it's high enough and there are uh, perennial streams. So they are able to keep crops going. So over the centuries, this very unique exchange system has been built in which the mountain tribes uh, provide carbohydrates for the island and the coastal tribes provide protein. And in this way, the they've come to just this an incredibly intricate barter system and balance in which they're mutually dependent and which um, they share all sorts of complex and, you know, really just quite special alliances, which are which would take uh, forever to detail, but which are, are just a wonderful example of human mutuality. So it's not a cash economy. There is starting to be a, some cash that's coming in, but until very recently, cash wasn't used, and still today, most food transactions take place through barter. There's also some very culturally unique ways of speaking. For example, you mentioned that on the water, they use different words than on the land. For example, they they call a knife a spoon, I think, because calling a knife a knife would bring bad luck because a knife is sharp and could, could cut the rope. You also talk about a ritual called the cleansing of harmful language, um, which sounds, uh, you know, sounds like uh, it might almost have some sort of parallel in post-structuralist academic discourse. Um, <laughs> and, and so what, what does that mean um, in that their language is so specialized? How is that developed and what does it mean to cleanse the harmful language? Well, there's, there's sort of two ways to answer that question. And the most... First of all, on a spiritual level, they believe that words have power. Um, and maybe the easiest way to think about it is that, you know, almost any word is like a spell. It has um, associations which can cause things to happen in the world. So if I were to, you know, say something really nasty to you, Rolf, um, you know, that actually would cause bad luck to sort of aim towards you or, you know, to be more likely to find you. Um, the same way that if I were to talk about, you know, a knife out on the water while we're hunting, it could cause the sharp 
edged properties of that word could cause the rope to break. And so one of the young men whom I followed over the over the course of these years during this story was injured very badly in a whaling accident. And um, the the tribe believed that uh, this partially had come because some people were essentially cursing him. And so they needed to undo those words um, with which uh, through which they brought in a special shaman and they did this ceremony in order to undo that harmful language or to cleanse it. There's also sort of a, a, a roll call. I don't know if this is if this is connected. It's sort of like a roll call of death. At the beginning of each hunting season, they name off the names of, of whale hunters who have in the past died at sea, which sounds like this very cinematic type moment. Is that tied into this language ceremony or the spiritual system of them? Yeah. So the, the Lama Lairns believe that, um, that their ancestors um, are always present. Um, their, their sort of original indigenous religion worshipped the ancestors and worshipped the whales. And so, um, you know, for them, the ancestors are always present. They're an active um, force in their lives, influencing events, causing um, good fortune or misfortune. Um, and so that roll call, as you, as you uh, described it, is you know noting is both summoning up the history of the tribe but also the individuals who sacrificed so that everyone could eat are the names on that list list within living memory or do they go all the way back centuries ago it goes back centuries um so for the beginning uh it's people whose names are uh are within living memory and then you know maybe even four or five generations back they can it's still a specific names, but once it gets really deep into the list, it's much more along the lines of like, and the crew of this boat, who all of whom were lost when the whale um, overturned it too far out to sea. Well, I want to get to the idea of how this place has changed and, and, and the sort of mix of tradition and, and encroaching modernity that you saw when you were there. But first, I want since you mentioned Moby Dick, I want to bring that up since that's such a frame of reference for American understanding of, of the whaling practice. Did you, did you study Moby Dick before you went there? Did you think about that story much? And did Melville's own experiences go take him to that part of the world? How, was there any connection between Moby Dick at all? So yes, there actually was quite a bit of uh, connection. Moby Dick in the book goes right by this island, and American whalers um, during the late 19th century very frequently went to that strait near this island. Um, it's considered the richest or one of the richest whaling grounds in the world, and so you know when American whalers were leaving Cape Cod and Boston and Connecticut and going on these three or four years journeys really what they were doing was they were crossing the Pacific Ocean to come hunt in the Lamalarians hunting ground. And so the Lamalarians actually still have um, various old American harpoons. You can tell um, by the, the way they're crafted um, and they keep them as heirlooms um, that <laughs> they, they do not remember. There's no uh, stories in their oral traditions of them directly meeting an American ship or a ship that they knew was American. But when they would kill a whale, often they would find embedded in it the harpoons of um, previous hunters who had not managed to subdue it. And so they kept those. And those are proof that 
uh, the Americans were right there hunting the whales alongside them. Wow, this is this is a total aside question, but are there any like Moby Dick nerds who go to that part of the world to sort of make contact with with old <laughs> harpoons and things like that? You know, I think um, uh, yes, <laughs> basically yes. This is the last the Lamellarians hunt in a way that's almost exactly the same as the way people hunted during Moby Dick's time. Um, the boats are slightly different, but the mechanics are all essentially the same. Um, and going on one of these hunts uh, is analogous to what you know Ishmael or Queequeg was doing uh, 200 years ago. Wow, that's amazing. My, my, my sister is an English professor, and she loves teaching Moby Dick, and she might this might tempt her to go to that part of the world, if indeed that is a thing. Um, now, you went to this part of the world... Um, and you, you were sort of enticed by the idea that this place existed. You were in a different part of Indonesia on a Fulbright Fellowship. What had changed by the time you got there? Were they using outboard motors when you first visited them? So they were using outboard motors by then. It was not as common as it is now. Now they're ubiquitous in the tribe. But when I first went there, I believe in... Mid 2011, if, oh, I'm getting old. <laughs> my my memory is fading, but I believe in mid 2011 was the inflection point when at that sort of council that I had described previously on the beach where they make the rules each year, they had finally decided, okay, we're going to allow a lot more of these motors. Previously, they would only allow them uh, a smaller number for things like uh, ferrying someone to a hospital or um, you know, sort of helping out, assisting the hunt, and they weren't allowed to be used during a hunt. And now um, they're allowed to be used during the hunts for smaller animals like marlin um, or sharks or smaller types of whales. But to keep the sort of sacred spiritual practice of the whale hunt, they are not allowed to be attached to the Tana during the whale hunt. The Taina being the, that traditional handmade boat that goes back to their first arrival on the island, correct? Correct. And that's a, you know, I think that's a great example of how the tribe is sort of very consciously navigating what they're willing to allow um, to be changed about their way of life and what they think is really important and what they want to keep. You know, one thing that comes to mind from my American sensibility is the Amish, you know, is people who are very strictly trying to keep a kind of tradition in the face of modernity all around them. So is there an inbred, is there a rumspringa? Like, is there is there a way to formally, within their belief system, engage with the idea of outside communities and modernity? Or is this just something from meeting to meeting? You know, like in one year they don't have outboard motors, the next, me the next year they decide, well, maybe outboard motors can really benefit our community. How does that work within their traditions? So there's no formal rumspringer like the Amish, but the Amish is a great comparison. Um, you know, the, it's, the Amish have decided that there are really some worthwhile things about the way that they live, and so they consciously choose, for example, to use stagecoaches over cars. Um, and, you know, same for the Lamalarians, a lot of anthropological research has shown that hunter-gatherer groups like this um, are less lonely, they have less mental health issues, they're physically f more healthy. And so as the Lamalarians do leave the tribe um, and go to the cities 
or really just large towns that are on their island and then cities that are several islands over, um, you know, they see what the alternatives are. They see um, how other Indonesians are living. By no means are they ignorant of the outside world. Um, and especially in the last decade, as a road has been built over the island or over the mountains to their part of the island, as, um, you know, they even got a cell phone tower um, nearby. As these things have happened, you know, they're very aware of what the other option is. And so they're trying to choose what's good about their way of life and also bring in what they feel is worthwhile from the outside world. You know, going back to the human idea of that we all, there's a core humanist to all of this, and that actually going to this part of the world and seeing this kind of culture can remind us of our own humanity. I, in a way, we're also always making decisions about what sort of advancements we're going to embrace or reject, right? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. And I think that's one reason why the book has resonated with so many people is is this this sense of shared humanity with the La Malarians, even though they might live a very different day-to-day existence than you or I. Um, I think people see a lot of themselves in the La Malarians. I mean, you were talking about 2011 and suddenly realizing that that was quite a long time ago. I think that there were certain forms of social media that were less diffused, you know. So there's this modern American conversation of, well, what have we lost by being on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram several hours a day? that in a way is, is sort of a similar conversation to what the Lamalarians might be talking about with, should we embrace outdoor motors? Should we embrace cell phones? What should we accept and what should we reject? Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, so one of the, you know, so the Lamalarians are an incredibly cohesive group. They um, share a huge amount of things and they coordinate to get almost everything done. But this isn't just true for the Lamalarians. Almost all foraging societies, almost all hunter-gatherer societies focus to a much more a much higher extent than industrial societies on cooperation because if you're if you're um an industrial hunter if you or i were industrial whalers rolf we could use uh um they have these grenade powered harpoons which can kill a a sperm whale with one hit um and you just need you and me and a small outboard motor, and we could do it ourselves. But if you are using traditional methods like the Lamalarians, you need 100 people to do it. And so you need, because you need 100 people, you need to have those social social bonds. You need to have ways of equitably distributing that meat between the dozens of people. You need to have all of these social structures and constant interactions between people to keep those things up. And so more than anything, as our tools and our distractions and our entertainments in the industrial world uh, give us less reasons to interact and coordinate with other people, those things are lost. And that's one of the main worries, I think, that the Lamalarians have about adopting some of our innovations. During the time that you were there, how common were things like electricity and cell phones? So electricity was available for most nights. They have a large government-powered generator or government-provided generator, um, which would would provide electricity during the night. And cell phones were fairly common. Um, You know, they were 
they were not uh, these are not smartphones. They're the old uh, keypad phones that you or I would um, think of as you know being back in I don't know turn of the millennium. But um, you know they were functional, and so they would allow you know some of the debates that would go on in in the town were would go along the lines of well you know should we be using these cell phones to hunt um should you know is is uh um is this going to disturb the ancestors does this um violate the the directions that the ancestors gave us about how to hunt and you know i actually saw that um debate play out over several years over several councils and um in the end what they decided to do was you know it's okay to have a cell phone with us in if we you know if someone gets hurt you know it's <laughs> it's great to be able to call back to town you know and and to be able to speed up the process of getting help because of that but you know you're not allowed to use it to um play music or something while you're out on the ocean you spent an accumulated year there basically over the course of several years how fully native did you go did you subsist on whale jerky did you bring your cell phone how integrated versus separate were you from the lamellarians you know so i tried to be i tried to do everything that they did while also recognizing that um i'm an american and i have extraordinarily different um an extraordinarily different background so both to acknowledge that but to the extent that i could participate in their life what is what does whale jerky taste like brined beef it's it's a red meat it's not a fish hmm. um and it's yeah it's just a very it's a very tough and a heavy beefy like meat and you you learn the languages how, how comfortable were you you write a little bit about you know not wanting to over romanticize you know the friendly natives of a faraway land yet you spend a lot of time with them uh, how integrated were you? Uh, I know that you learned a little bit of their local language. You 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 all spoke a little bit of Bahasa Indonesian. Um, do do you do you keep in touch with these guys? What was how, how local did you feel after your accumulated year there? I still feel very welcome in the tribe. I was back there actually just a few months ago. Um, so I speak uh, Bahasa fluently. Um, I've spent you know accumulated oh years and years in Indonesia at this point um and then I learned Lama Holo to a to a degree that we would you know do maybe I don't know 60 or 70 percent of our conversations in that language um I like languages and it was a, a real pleasure to get to to try and decode one that did not have a lot of learning materials or other um <laughs> sort of prepackaged uh prepackaged resources for it. Um, and, you know, I, I feel extremely close to the Lamalarians, and I felt just extraordinarily lucky in getting to share their lives. And one of the joys of sort of finishing the book and, and having it out in the world is, um, you know, most of my job, the, the work that I do now and the work that I would do when I was not on the island is as an investigative journalist for various magazines. Um, and so while I was working with the Lamalarians, you know, I tried to keep a very strict um, source journalist relationship. But now that I'm done with the book, I, I feel um, that I can just be friends. And that's been wonderful. One interesting writerly choice you made in the book 
is that there's not a lot of you in it. You know, that, that, that it sort of tells the stories of the Lamalarians, and there's not a lot of Doug walking around and having these conversations. How conscious was that choice, and was it influenced by, you know, certain, a certain discomfort with tropes of travel writing? Yeah, so the only time that I appear in the book, um, and I being both the, the, the pronoun as well as myself, is in the afterword. Um, the book is structured as a documentary. Um, it follows three families over the course of those three years, and it just tries to focus on their experiences rather than my own. And that was an extremely conscious choice. Um, I, I don't regard myself as a particularly interesting person. Um, I think that the the individuals I wrote about and the experiences that they were undergoing were much, much more... Um, much, much more consequential than my own lived experience. And so I wanted to keep the focus on them. And I especially wanted to make sure I didn't fall into certain tropes of, um, for lack of a better word, you know, men's men's adventure travel writing. Um, I did not want to aggrandize myself. I did not want to uh, show myself being brave or masculine or um, anything else like that. And it was really important to me that the focus instead be on the Lamalarians and what readers could draw from experiencing their way of life. How active were you in the hunts? Did you throw harpoons? Did you help butcher whales? Or were you just sort of at the fringes? <laughs> I, did, I did not spear any whales. Um, I, for, the, for the whale hunts especially, I tried to stay out of the way. Um, they're real... Uh, it's real combat. Um, one of the men that I follow in the book was seriously wounded. Um, that's one of the sort of the opening uh, scenes of the book. Another one of my friends was killed um, during another hunt. Um, and so um, I being uh, I, I got to the point where I knew my way around the boat and how to act and what to do and could pitch in um, when necessary during a hunt. But I tried to be a journalist and an observer and stay far out of the, as far as out of the way as I could and keep my head down during what would be hours long, um, you know, really, really literally life or death combat between the whales and, and the Lamalarians. Well, you were very much a traveler, a, a stranger in a strange land, seeing a, a culture that was different than your own, but you depict Lamalarians doing travels of their own. And in fact, one of your characters goes uh, to Bali and I think becomes a DJ. Um, what role has young people in particular's contact with the outside world? How has that served their community and how has it complicated things? Yeah, so, you know, as I noted before, the Lamalayans are very aware of what's happening outside um, their tribe and especially the young people want to experience what life is like um, with all of these, you know, glittering enticements that they see. Um, and so two of the people, or actually three of the people I write about are quite young and are sort of finding their place in the tribe and in the world. And part of that process is, um, you know, is going out and experiencing the cities and is, um, you know, a lot of them during the rainy season when it's much harder to hunt will go work um, on construction crews or get a job at a factory or, um, you know, 
other straightforward sort of manual labor for a few months in order to earn some money, which they don't really have in the tribe being a barter economy so that they can buy, you know, medicine or other things during the year when they need it. Um, and so, you know, and a lot of people focus on sort of the drama of the whale hunt and, you know, that life or death struggle when they talk about the book. But in some ways, the most essential choice that the characters are making is is in moments like that where they travel outside the tribe and see what other options there are for existence and what they want to try and do with their lives. Again, at Rumspringa comes to mind, you know, just the, the idea of of seeing other options. And, and you bring up the idea, well, there's there's this hard work, which is whaling, but there's also this hard work, which is construction, which is part of a cash economy, which is different than trading for whale jerky. And then there's also very much this world of Hollywood and Bollywood and Nollywood coming up against the more traditional ideas of of tribal mythology and tribal stories that inform their lives. How did you see the young people, especially their interaction with these forces change and deepen during the time you were there? You know, I think one of the things that surprised me was that, you know, when I began this project, um, especially in that first year, I didn't know what the end result was going to be. You know, you sort of choose the people that you're going to follow, that you're going to embed with, and you have no idea or control. uh, And you really very specifically do not want to influence any of these people in their choices. And so I had thought at certain points that some of the individuals I was following were going to leave the tribe. If I had to have, if I had been forced to make bets sort of during that end of that first year, during parts of the second year, I would have said that um, certainly one of the young apprentice harpooners was going to end up um, living in Bali for a large portion of his life. But you know, as they matured, it was very interesting to see them reevaluate what they found worthwhile about their traditions. You know, when you're young, I think you sort of uh, you want to overthrow the man, you want to overthrow the order, and then as you get older, um, you know, m- many of them had the chance to experience life outside the tribe, and also to see what was really worthwhile about their own ways of living. What about young women? I, as, as I understand it, it's a pretty patriarchal society. What kind of choices are young women making as they learn more about opportunities in the outside world? So one of the characters that I follow in the book is a young woman. And she, I think, had the hardest set of circumstances with which to engage. Um, you know, the, the tribe is patriarchal. Um, the, the women have a great deal of power on land, but ultimately the decisions come down to the men. And so she was really interested in um, going to high school, which would have required her to leave the tribe and go live in a, in a town on the other side of the mountains and, you know, maybe have an easier life than um, trading in the market and, and cooking over a wood fire every day. But... Um, Ultimately, she fell in love with another young, with a young hunter, and um, they had a, a, a baby out of wedlock. And that um, she decided to stay and care for the child rather than pursue her own ambitions. And so, I think that um, for someone like her, the opportunities represented by the outside world are both the most alluring, but also perhaps the hardest to get for individuals in the tribe.
are there young women who have who have gone and married elsewhere and 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 really live a different life now a non-traditional life or is is tradition for men and women both still pretty central there no there are many people who have left the tribe um and increasingly so um the tribe is is the numbers there are very stable um you know it's remained at about 1500 1600 people for the last century um there's records within in their church of you know of baptisms and, and deaths that allow you to tell that but um the way that the population has remained stable is that uh sort of anyone over that number generally ends up leaving um and will will retain a deep emotional bond to the tribe but um you know because of the difficulty in travel in indonesia often does not end up coming home very often Last year when I was in a different part of Indonesia, really I was on the complete opposite side of Indonesia, I went from Sumatra to Sibirut Island, where a part of the economy there is hiking into the jungle on basically organized treks for, for travelers, tourists like me, um, and to get a, get a taste of this life that is not that far removed from Stone Age life. It has a few affectations, has some some fanny packs and wristwatches and rubber boots, but other than that is often very similar to the way their lifestyle was 200 or 500 years ago. Is there any tourist economy at all uh, in the part of Indonesia where you were? So I would say that there are probably between 125 and maybe 175 foreigners who visit the Lamalarians every year. Um, by no means is it uh, an unknown group. Um, and many people who hear about it want to see things like like a hunt that resembles Moby Dick. Um, it is un, it is I, I have never been to the Mentawis where I believe Sibirut is, um, but I believe it's significantly different than Sibirut in that. To be honest, <laughs> the, in, the the tourism so far in La Malera has had a pretty minimal impact Um the, there's not a lot for tourists to do. Um, a lot of people will sort of show up and um, uh, go on a hunt one day and get extremely sunburned and seasick. And if people do catch anything, they it's often significantly more uh, people people who tourists who are riding along in a hunt are often not prepared for what a hunt actually is. I mean, like it's, so, it's more brutal, like more blood and, and spearing and violence or something else? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, you know, it, it's uh, to take down a whale with a piece of bamboo takes eight to 10 hours sometimes. Um, the hunters are, you're out on the open sea, so the waves can be quite big. You don't have protection in an open boat. Um, the hunters are used to and not bothered by not eating for that amount of time and drinking only a little water but tourists are not um their economy is not catering does not cater to tourists um you know they're more than happy to uh bring a tourist along and if the tourist you know gives the equivalent of give or take twenty dollars um which is actually a lot for the lamalarians but they're not um uh, they're, they're, this is not, this is not the goal of their hunt. The, the goal of their hunt is to feed themselves and also for spiritual and religious purposes. Um, and they're not catering to, um, uh, um, to tourists. And so tourists usually have one of two experiences, one of which is they come 
and there is no whales and they leave bored because um, there's no other entertainment in the village or they get to see a hunt and are shocked and overwhelmed. How do these people know about this part of the world? Because I know when I was on Sibirut, it was sort of a word of mouth thing. I've been I've been hearing about Sibirut um, near Sumatra from other backpackers for like 20 years. Whereas there's parts of Borneo and Papua New Guinea, which actually have a very sophisticated tourism industry catering to tribe-specific tourism. Are there any movies or books or other things that, that white people would know about the Lamellarians, or is it just another word-of-mouth type thing? So um, anthropologists have been visiting and living with them since the 1980s. Um, there's an Oxford University professor who visited them and spent, you know, accumulated the accumulated time of about a year from 1985 to 1990, um, who wrote a book that I think sort of clued some people in. Um, there's uh, my own work. You know, there's there's it's by no means is it unknown. Um, the the human planet, um, the National Geographic series, I believe, uh, had a five minute segment on them. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think, you know, I think word of mouth exists and, you know, there's other, there's, there has been plenty of media across that about them, but it takes a very, until recently, really just a few years ago, it took forever to get there. Um, there was no good option except for basically island hopping on these very slow ferries to get there in a way that it could take a week to go and a week to come back. And so now there's a much faster way to do it. But um, I think it just it's been tough <laughs> for people to to make it out there. And it's also tough because, again, the 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 tribe itself does not orient itself towards tourism. Um, there's not a whole lot of they have not been trying to attract tourists. They're more than happy and welcome for outsiders to come and join them and hang out for a bit. Um, but really until the last year or two when the Indonesian government has started getting interested in the idea of driving tourism their way, there wasn't a whole lot to bring outsiders there or to keep them there. That's really interesting. It sort of underscores the fickleness of tourism. You know, years ago, I was traveling in Central America with some travelers who really wanted to see animals, and they were so disappointed. But the problem is we were only there for a couple of hours. We were like in a Central American journal, j jungle for a couple of hours, and I, think, I don't think they realized that it's not really consumer-oriented, that, that to see a lot of animals, you have to be still in, in the deep forest for a long time. And I think, I think similarly, just the idea that there's not something for tourists to do. That's probably the original condition of tourism. You go to another culture on the other side of the world and it's not there to entertain you, right? So is there any advice for people who want to see the Lamellarians, including just don't go because there's nothing to do? I mean, how would you experience this culture if, it, if you were curious about it? Or is it really not recommended for most travelers? You know, I, the Lamellarians are absolutely lovely people, um, and they're always more than well. They're always incredibly welcoming. They're an incredibly hospitable culture and people. Um, I would say that the most important thing is to be able to speak Bahasa Indonesia. Um, without there's really not there's one man who can speak some English in the town, but other than that. Um, Basically, no one can speak any English. <laughs> so if you're 
if you're going, a lot of the richness of their way of life is in their culture, is in um, things that can really only be communicated verbally. Um, so I would hope that if people would go, they would have at least made an attempt to, to get to, to learn at least basic Indonesian beforehand. And then, um, you know, to to go there and to look at things, not just for sort of the adrenaline uh, experience of going on a hunt, but for really the the incredible opportunity to experience a different way of life, um, which this is probably one of the more accessible um, hunter gatherer groups in the world. And, you know, that's an incredible experience in and of itself. Bahasa Indonesian is is not hard to learn, too, right? Like compared to Russian, Bahasa is actually a, a fairly a easy language, right? Absolutely. It's considered one of the easiest languages to learn in the world. So if someone if someone were to to uh, to try and go, um, it's it's or want to try and learn a language in order to make a trip, it's actually a, a sort of a realistic choice. Now, on kind of a final note, you you bring up in your book the idea that you know they have encounters with cultures like this have a lot to teach us about who we were, who we are, and who we will be. And you talk about how you know anthropologists have determined that this is like the original affluent society in a way they they work fewer hours per week than we do that they're more that they're less lonely than we are they're probably less depressed than we are we live in a very convenience oriented society uh that's more industrial we're not used to catching our own food some people live entire lives without once catching or killing their own food um so what does a society like this one have to teach us about who we are as well as who we have been and who we might be? You know, I think there's two things that the La Malerians can really, really teach us. One of which is that, um, you know, it's relationships that really matter. It's relationships that make a life worthwhile and which make, um, yeah, which make life worth living. And I think that they, in their sort of relentless focus on, uh, mutuality and cooperation um, really embody that. And then, um, you know, I think that they also have can teach us the lesson that it's possible to make choices about how we want to live in this rapidly globalizing and uh, world where the technology is changing so quickly. It's, um, you know, it's very hard for someone like you or I to resist the next iPhone upgrade or, you know, to be using the newest social media platform. It just feels almost inevitable that we go along with it. But I think the La Malarians in the way they've lived their life show that it's possible to be conscious and to be um, contemplative and intentional about what we choose to accept from the very rapidly changing world and what we should hope to turn away. You spent a lot of time there developing relationships with these people, and I know you can't see the future, but what would you guess it would be like if you returned to see your much older friends in 20 years? No, I, I really hope to do that. Um, that that would be an absolute pleasure, and it's something that um, I, I really dream of doing. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that they'll still be hunting if that's what they want to do. I think it's important that each um, people group gets to choose its own 
way of life. And if that's something that they feel is important to them, um, then I hope they're still able to do it. It's not, you know, it's there. The unique circumstances of it mean that it's not ecologically impactful. There are over uh, 300,000 sperm whales left in the world. The 20 or so a year they take does not push the sperm whales towards extinction. So I hope that they're able to continue their way of life if that's what they want to do. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Doug Bach Clark's book, The Last Whalers, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.